family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grant, your host, and we do look forward to an hour of conversational improvisation, some cool jazz music from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, and our special guest, one of our favorite people on the planet, Claire Audient, psychic and numerologist, Lois Martin. And in addition to getting a take on where we are culturally, numerologically, you will get an opportunity to call in and get some insights from Lois during our final segment. We'll tell you more about that. Joining me for some good conversation this morning, our Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate, Victoria Sullivan, and Radio Woodstock Weekend On-Air Warrior, Ron Van Warmer. He'll also be engineering and pushing all the buttons, including ours. Among the topics, it's the 50th anniversary of what I consider the greatest film of all time, 2001 A Space Odyssey. How's Hal doing? How are we doing? How are we relating to artificial intelligence? Some of the topics we'll get into, as well as that most famous edit jump cut in cinematic history. We'll also talk about the 50th anniversary of some interesting protests and riots here in the United States. Maybe it's coming back. We promise you a few laughs, some insights, and some surprises. Hang out with us here at the Woodstock Roundtable. And how appropriate that our introduction every week ends with the <laughs> final bars of also Sprach Zarathustra, which a uh, by Richard Strauss, which was used so powerfully in the movie 2001. And we'll get into some of maybe the reasons why Cooper chose it. Mm. But first, good morning, Victoria. Good morning, Doug. You brought chocolate? What is this? No, that's my glasses case. Oh, Isn't glasses? it pretty? It looks like the Toffler chocolate <laughs> cake. <laughs> well, I'll do anything to find my glasses. Wait a minute. Chocolate glasses. <laughs> or the yeah. chocolate smell so you can lead yourself to There's a idea there somewhere. I yes, think so. Right. Chocolate glasses. The problem would probably be in the sun. You could, you'd have yeah. to problem. Yeah, you get little <laughs> drippy things on your but lenses. But everybody's always chewing on the ends of their glasses. They might as well be chocolate, right? That's yeah. And we can make it organic to fit into our theme here. <laughs> yeah. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Doug. 50th anniversary Happy of anniversary. 2001 A Space Odyssey. I've told many stories about this movie and my experience with it. We've discussed it many times. It deserves that because here we are in the age of artificial intelligence. And among the many achievements of that movie was really the, the first time a serious, deep look at the relationship between humans and and machine intelligence. Yeah. Um, and the br- from the brilliant mind, uh, first, of Arthur C. Clarke, um, whom Kubrick, the great director, chose uh, to write the script with, it, they had 
a love-hate relationship, as everyone did with Kubrick. Um, <laughs> it, the, the, there's a new book out. We're going to be interviewing the author. We're trying to find the, the right date. It's going to be in the next probably four to five weeks hmm. of a really brilliant book on 2001, celebrating the 50th anniversary. Wow. It gets into a lot of not only the technological achievements, but some interesting information about the relationship between Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. Clark being one of the great science fiction writers uh, in history. And science fiction at its best um, is usually a pretty good indicator of things to come. Yeah. I mean, look at H.G. Wells and what he anticipated, uh, Jules Verne, what he anticipated, and certainly uh, Arthur C. Clarke uh, at the highest level of the pantheon of science fiction writers. But I want to, uh, now I talked about it briefly before, it kind of connects the two themes of this also being the 50th uh, anniversary of the year of greatest global protests. It was 1968. huge. It mm-hmm. was literally, I was re- reviewing some of the data this morning. Um, in 1968, first of all, we had had already a couple of years of, um, more than a couple of years, of three major, major movements um, of the 60s that we baby boomers have a right to be somewhat proud of, of, of generating. Um, and that was the women's liberation movement. It's a little later. Um, <laughs> it is. I mean, the first march was 1970 for women. Excuse and me. That's, when, did, when did the feminine mystique come out? When did okay, the feminine mystique sort of set it up, but really sexual politics by Kate Millett, which also came out in 1970, was a big shot to the women's a, movement. True, but there was a very clear women's movement starting in the mid-60s. Gloria uh, Steinem, absolutely. Later. I was at Columbia then. And I knew those women, and they met in my apartment. <laughs> and it was it was coming in the '60s, but it really wasn't there yet. It was like rumblings. Okay. It's a little bit later. Fine, but the but the roots ha- ha- were started. It didn't. Sure. It didn't. It didn't emerge. I I accept the fact that it became the big deal in say 1970. But certainly there was a, move, a women's movement making waves in the '60s, along with. The anti-Vietnam protest. That was definitely there. Along with the civil rights yes. movement. Yes, yes. Civil rights sort of first. Civil rights, Yep. then the anti-war, then within the... I think the anti-war actually helped women come forward because they would go to these meetings and they wouldn't get the power that the men had mm-hmm. at, at the meetings. And I think they... Because people were starting... A lot of the stuff at Columbia with the women was just a couple of years after the overtaking of the buildings and things in 68. Let's get our facts there. Would you just Google women's movement 1960s? When would Roe versus Wade take uh, come about? Um, That's a good point, too. Because that, that was, was definitely a, a big... And that was definitely 60s. That could be. Um, I, I, again, I'm happy to be proven wrong. I, and I, I don't, I'm not doubting that in 1970 it was a huge year. Feminine Mystique started attacking the whole housewife thing. It was a little... Well, that's part of the women's movement. But that, right, but that was like the first shot fired. And then it took a few more years before more before Germaine Greer. And all these people started coming forward in the early and 70s. Again, I always say nostalgia is the great lie because our memories are usually false. But I do have a memory of Gloria Steinem on TV um, being very vocal about women's rights and women power uh, in the 60s. And that could be wrong, but we'll, we'll check it out. Um, the, the point is the 60s were a revolutionary decade. 1968 
really was a combustible year, both literally mm-hmm. and physically, because you had protests not only in the United States. Paris had a huge thing. Uh, uh, right. Paris students aligned with union workers. They almost shut the government down. Um, Czechoslovakia, there were riots against the Soviet Union. Um, there were protests literally worldwide, and certainly here in the United States. Now, the protests in Europe were not about race. They were about uh, governmental oppression and workers' rights. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, here, you, you had all of that plus the uh, civil rights movement. And in 1968, I mean, what a year. I mean, I was a senior in high school. Um, uh, Martin Luther King is assassinated. Robert Kennedy is assassinated. Um, it's, you know. And he'd had the free speech just slightly earlier at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Well, we can start back in, let's say, 1960. The Food and Drug Administration approved the first oral contraceptive. Uh, we forget how important contraception is to the women's movement. Women, uh, 1961, Women's Strike for Peace, founded by Bella Abzug. Thank you. Remember Bella Abzug Bella? was a, politi- a New York City politician who had that big hat, and she was one tough broad. And she would take crap from nobody at a time when most women took a lot of crap. And she was, she was doing her thing on TV I, in the mid-60s. I interviewed her on an elevator once. Um, <laughs> we were st- we were, we were, we'd gone down to the city when DST first started. And uh, we were doing news, and we went down for a uh, Elizabeth Holtzman was running for the Senate, mm-hmm. and Bella Abzug happened to walk on the elevator that I was going on, and so I had my microphone and my tape recorder, <laughs> so I just started talking and interviewing her. And uh, was uh, she a congresswoman? I, I'm not sure if she was a congresswoman at that time, but she was supporting Elizabeth Holtzman, mm. and. Uh, it was just it was just so kind of bizarre. So keep going because it sounds like yeah the women's were, were really early sixties. Nineteen sixty three, the feminine mystique, Betty Friedan. That was a huge book. That was sixty three. Um, uh, sixty four, Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, uh, including the discrimination based on sex. Uh, and um, the National Organization for uh, Women, known as NOW, was founded in 1966. Okay. So, again, and I'm glad you were, you were there in the apartment with some of these uh, <laughs> very important women, uh, citing 1970 as a huge year. Right. <clears throat> but, but that was, the culmi- uh, in a sense, a culmination of what had been really a driving force. And I remember it on TV. It was not silent. It was not invisible. It was in our face. Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to mention, because I bring up McLuhan a lot, in reading uh, about the 60s, the point can be made, in fact, I think a very strong point can be made, that if we wanted to pick the single most important influence that helped ignite all these this worldwide protests against governmental oppression, against communism, against for, for workers' rights, for civil rights, for women's liberation, anti-war, the most important influence that generated all that was tv yeah yes yeah because people could see it everyone could see it right and i've told the story before um my mother whose total political experience was president of her of our elementary school pta (laughs) was asked to run as a delegate for eugene mccarthy in 1968 Lyndon Johnson was an interesting dude. Here's a guy from Texas. 
Southerner and was the single most important white person for advocating civil rights. Yeah. Okay. He put he, as president. He used the bully pulpit to force a reluctant Congress to pass civil rights. But this was the same man who would not let go of Vietnam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And by 1968, he was a, he, he had defeated Barry Goldwater after he became president after John Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. He runs in 1964 and destroys Barry Goldwater. So he's he's got a huge popular you know b- uh, backing. Passes with a bully using the bully pulpit, the Civil Rights Act, no easy feat. Knowing that he would, the Democrats would lose the South, right, forever. South had always been democratic. (laughs) Yeah. However, he was he would not he would not back off the Vietnam Mm. War, and by 1968, the protests against that war were becoming ferocious. Right. And so Eugene McCarthy, a little-known senator from Minnesota, who was known as the poet senator because he he wrote poetry. (laughs) Right. Um, decides to run as a protest candidate against the sitting president for the nomination. And everyone said, well, that's good as a protest, but you have no chance. To everyone's shock, in the first primary in New Hampshire, while I believe Johnson won it, he won it by such a small margin, he realized he was done. Yeah. And he, to everyone's shock, goes on TV and says, I've chosen not to run again. Well, now it's wide open for Bobby Kennedy. But Eugene McCarthy needed delegates. You can't run for president without delegates. Well, no one gave him a chance. So to run as a McCarthy delegate was like saying, I'll have some fun. (laughs) So my mother says, sure, I'll run. She wins. We go to the Chicago Convention, summer of 1968. I've graduated high school, and I am about to enter Columbia University in, in, in in the fall of 68 meanwhile in the spring of 68 when all this global revolution was happening in paris and prague mm-hmm. um in this even in the soviet union there were open protests there was violence here in the united states and one of the uh, you mentioned berkeley mm-hmm. uh they had big protests with poli- police coming in but columbia was maybe the most famous where the students took over buildings yeah right and the protest was both against the war and also against the gymnasium that Columbia wanted to build in Harlem. Talk about bad PR, right? <laughs> the, the, the Columbia um, the mucky mucks wanted to build this gymnasium, right, in Harlem, because Columbia is right on the edge of, of Harlem. Right. And they realized, well, you know what? As PR, we ought to also open it up to the residents of Harlem. Right? Otherwise, the protests are going to be too great, right? Well, here's what they do. It was going to be a two-tiered building, and they felt that they didn't want the residents of Harlem mixing with the Columbia sporting events, so they had separate entrances. Ooh. Not a good idea. (laughs) This was a proposal. Well, the students went nuts. Did they have separate water fountains as well? (laughs) Come on. Talk about a dumb move. (laughs) So there's this huge protest. They're lighting fire to buildings, and the police come in, and the police actually rode in on horses. Yeah. It was the weirdest thing. It was like the Cossacks coming. You could hear the horses' hooves on the sidewalk. <laughs> wow. 
Wow. <laughs> a bunch of them came. It was bizarre. So now, here we are out in the convention in Chicago, and I'm thinking, oh, political convention. This will be fun. Lots of parties. Well, <clears throat> there were some parties, um, but there was also a riot yeah. in Chicago because Abby Hoffman, who I later got to interview, led a movement you know, of protesters. And the reason I bring this up is why television was so important. The National Guard was called out. The police were called in to break them up in the park. A riot ensued. And Abby Hoffman, with his megaphone, seeing the TV cameras were covering this, famously uttered the phrase, the whole world is watching. Mm. That was never possible mm. before. Well, at Columbia, when this was all going on, there was a huge press presence all the time and every night on tv they'd say oh they're going crazy but sometimes there were really maybe 10 or 15 people walking around in a circle with placards screaming and they would get up close on this and they would make it look like it was 500 now sometimes it was a few hundred but you could see if you were on the ground what the what the photographers were taking they wanted they encouraged the students to hop up on the sundial and scream and shake their fists because it made better tv mm -hmm. Um, but there, yes, all that is true. And it's, but there was, it was almost like a powder keg. The whole world was like, felt like it was mm -hmm. exploding, and it was all for good reason. For legit, what many of us who with a more progressive attitude felt were legitimate protest issues. Um, so, um, and you know, there was a mood. It went beyond the issues because you could really feel it at Columbia. There was a mood overall <laughs> of overthrowing authority. Mm -hmm. And once that thing got going at Columbia. It was anti-war, it was anti the president of the university, it was anti the gym, but it was sort of anti older people's power. There was also another big issue, and that was <clears throat> a student discovers in the library doing research, which is what college is all about, right? <laughs> discovers that the Columbia administration and institutes within the college were being paid by the Defense Department to give them data to help take advantage of people in Africa, mm. okay? And and when he came out, and that was a powder keg issue as well. Mm. And, um, and that was a legitimate protest issue as well. It was quite a time, 1968. Yeah, well, Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy. Both assassinated. Yeah. And clearly, it was clear that Bobby Kennedy was going to be the next president. He would have beat Nixon. Um, yeah. <clears throat> uh, but, you know, so he's, he's gone. It was quite a year. It was also the year that the Beatles were asked to come up with a song to respond to all this. Now, I don't care how talented you are. Talk about the pressure <laughs> of coming up with a song. You're the Beatles, right? You're, Lennon, you're John Lennon, the leader of the Beatles, and you're asked to come up with a song to reflect all this. And he did a brilliant thing. The song is Revolution. And in those lyrics, he didn't just come out and simply say, yeah, we got a protest. He really hit a nuance. And <clears throat> famously, <clears throat> Lennon sings, if, but, if you, but if it's going to be violence, count me out. And then you hear McCartney say, but count me in. Mm. <clears throat> they gave you that, that kind of yin-yang of both sides of it. But I think there's a single line in the lyrics of Revolution that appealed to me more than any lyric ever in rock and roll. 
and I've taken it to heart ever since. In a way, it's been a theme of the show for 35 years. In Revolution, he says, you say you want a revolution. Well, you better free your mind instead. Mm. <clears throat> Lenin was clearly not saying, don't protest. He helped lead protests uh, subsequently. But what he's saying, I think, is profound, which is, it's great to protest. It's important to protest. But if all we do is protest, we're just going to have to do it again mm -hmm. and again and again. But if we free our minds, meaning we free our minds not only of what the government wants us to follow, what rules the government wants us to follow, what rules our school system wants us to follow, what system our medical health experts want us to follow, which is basically take drugs. Um, it's not just about that. It's about discovering what do I really think and feel. That is a lifelong pursuit to cut through all of the stuff that we're told um, is the right way to live. Some of which was good advice and most of which was pretty crappy yeah. advice. <laughs> and I think that was very behind those student movements was that sense that, that there were too many rules in the society and that some of them <clears throat> were ridiculous and that there was too much parental authority. And I think that's also why the, the hair got long. And the hair the, and, got long and, and the, the smoking got, of mm, marijuana mm -hmm. and the, you know, free your minds and, and walk away from your, your parents. Walk away from your country if it's going to tell you to pick up a gun and you don't wish to. I mean, there was this real many, many currents going on in that. Among those currents was the most famous athlete in the world. Hmm. Yep, Cassius, Cassius Clay. Clay had become Muhammad Ali. Yep. Yeah. And became a black Muslim, which was a very, very radical, you know, African American group, which actually um, proclaimed the need for blacks to break away from the white race. Yeah. And here is Ali, this magnificently handsome, fabulous athlete, and brilliant rhetorician yeah speaker brilliant and he they, they stripped him of his license and and he refused to go because to vietnam he refused to go to vietnam and when they said why and he knew he could go to jail mm -hmm. most famous athlete in the world you know you don't become a better boxer in jail i mean this was his profession this is what he lived his life for they knew he knew he, they could take it away but his ethics were more important to him than his pocketbook or his profession and he said Famously, you I, I, I get the exact quote, I have no beef with them Viet Cong. Right. Right. Right? Why should I go over there? I don't have any, I don't have a problem with Viet Cong. Right. You want me to put my life on the line for what? Yeah. I ain't going. Talk about a brilliant and important human being. You know? So, what, what a time. It was a time. And it was the year the 2001 came out, which freaked me out. <clears throat> Much more than the Columbia riots did. <laughs> and, and didn't we have astronauts heading to the moon? 1969. They went to the moon in 69, but didn't the first ones they, go up and go around it? Yes, and I'm going to bring that up because it totally coincided with my watching with the first time I saw the movie 2001. Oh. We'll get into all the... And, <laughs> and when I came back, I also realized, wait a minute. They're playing Vespake Zarathustra. That's, that's the book I'm reading by Nietzsche. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah, what a time. We'll get into it.
Doc Roundtable, Doug Runthy, your host. Co-hosting with me today are our Poet Laureate, which means we get a wonderful poem later from Victoria Sullivan, and Radio Woodstock on-air weekend warrior Ron Van Wormer. Our special guest at 8.30 will be our favorite uh, Claire audience psychic and numerologist, Lois Martin. We'll give listeners an opportunity to call in and get some quick insights from Lois. We're talking about the 50th anniversary of probably... Well, the most revolutionary year in modern history, mm. 1968, when there were worldwide protests having to do with government suppression, workers' rights, civil rights, women's rights, and the anti-war movement. Um, and it's also 1968, uh, the year of 2001, A Space Odyssey. When I, I've told the story before, so I'll be brief about it. I had a date with this woman, this girl I'd had a crush on all through high school, but was she was a year behind me I don't know and then finally when I went to Columbia I said I'm gonna she's a senior I'm gonna call her up and she said yes to the date which shocked me and I said I hear there's this cool movie called 2001 well unfortunately I paid very little attention to her I was so taken by this movie it freaked me out I had been reading Nietzsche for a philosophy course and here's this movie using Thus Spake Zarathustra which is a book by Nietzsche um, music by Richard Strauss that that um, Kubrick uses every time the monolith shows up. Mm-hmm. There had never been a movie like anything like that ever before, and um, uh, th- I just found out another synchronicity. Now I have read incessantly about this movie, and there's a new book we're going to be interviewing the author, which goes into a lot of new detail about the making of the movie for its 50th anniversary. Arthur C. Clarke nor Kubrick never said, because it, plenty of people saw the connection between Nietzsche and the script and the use of Thus Spake Zarathustra every time the monolith shows up. Um, but they never said they, they were influenced by Nietzsche, which is, they may not have been consciously uh-huh. influenced by him. But here's another interesting synchronicity. Nietzsche was a philosopher in the late 19th century, much misunderstood. Um, I think one of the greatest philosophers of all time, Freud, by, uh, by the way, said Nietzsche was the first great psychologist and knew his mind better than almost anybody who ever lived. Hmm. Um, now, Nietzsche ended up going crazy. Yeah, he ended up in an asylum. Uh, but there's a fair amount of evidence that it was syphilis and not just, um, you know, the fact that he, that he, <laughs> he was, was crazy. <laughs> interested in looking at how his mind worked. Although, as Jung pointed out, that can make you crazy, too. It's just worthwhile. Uh, but at any rate, um, <clears throat> the, what, what, uh, in, what Nietzsche has been quoted as saying, what influenced him to write, what was basically a comedic philosophical novel, an unheard of genre, 
Um, Nietzsche had already become famous as a philosopher, uh, but he decided he needed to write a novel to get some of his ideas across. And he had this idea of using Zarathustra, who was based on a historical religious leader. But this was like the anti-religious leader, because Nietzsche was very anti-organized religion. But Nietzsche was very much in favor of the need for us all to, to investigate how our minds work. And that's why he, that, that was his big beef against Christianity, because Christianity, like most organized religions, are interested in controlling our minds and telling right. us what to do. And Nietzsche rebelled against anything that was about telling us what to do, um, including governments. He believed that to be a full human being, he's often referred to as the first existentialist, although that also said of Kierkegaard, um, because he believed that in order to be fully human, the individual has to investigate his or her own mind and emotions and discover what they tr- who they are, not what other people tell them to be. And that's what Zarathustra is all about, aphoristically. Now, here's something I just discovered. His, his inspiration for writing Zarathustra, he was taking a vacation in Switzerland, 6,000 feet above sea level. There's this lake, and... Around this lake, he saw this huge piece of stone, this huge rock that was almost looked like it was polished and shaped like a pyramid. Hmm. Look at the monolith in Kubrick's 2001, a shiny, metallic, stone-like. Now, it's, it's more of a rectangle, but... It's interesting that Nietzsche saw this image as his inspiration for Zarathustra. There's another connection. The key philosophical insight in Zarathustra is that we humans are a bridge between ape and the overman, the ubermensch, which gets unfairly uh, translated as Superman. Mm -hmm. Right. Like he wanted some super race like the Nazis did. No. It was the overman, which is still an English translation. The ubermensch is the transcendent human, that human being who has so understood him or herself and the limitations of being human, fear, greed, um, the need to conform, that we become the next evolutionary being. Now look at the end of 2001. It's all about the transformation of a human into something transhuman. And when Bowman becomes the star child, what piece of music comes back up? Thus spake Zarathustra. Uh-huh. So the connect, now that doesn't mean that they were consciously using Nietzsche, but the connections are at least remarkably synchronistic. Yeah. It's got to be some, some subconscious. And there might have been some conscious, because I was listening to some material on this film. And apparently early on when they were building the sets, Kubrick had a set designer and he was trying to think of something futuristic. And at a certain point he said no. And he went to NASA and he got NASA designers to do the sets because he wanted them to really be like where science was going. Mm -hmm. So he would have these moments of revelation. And also apparently a lot of the uh, devices in the the film that, that were like, early computers and things, he was going to have a voiceover explaining to you what it was in the film. And he had this all done with a lot of different machines. And then almost before the final edit, he said, no, 
that that takes too much of the metaphor and the mystery away. And he took those out, but they had recorded voiceovers saying, and this machine does this and this and this. And so there was that conscious-unconscious thing that he must have kept doing. Like, what is it that I'm really trying to achieve here? There's also some interesting differences you can read about between the the, the novel that Clark wrote based on his screenplay for 2001 and what Kubrick used. Mm -hmm. And the biggest difference, and I'm glad Kubrick made his, as much as I love the uh, Clark's ending, cinematically I prefer Kubrick's. Okay, Clark's idea was when when the bone is thrown up in the air and the famous jump cut to the space capsule, mm-hmm. you see something orbiting. And in, in, an, in an earlier script, Kubrick was going to follow Clark's script, which is it's an orbiting nuclear weapon hmm. mm. that is about to be detonated by one of the countries of the United States, which could most which would be un, which would unleash a catastrophic nuclear war. And in the in Clark's version, and he's the main writer, the Star Child, the 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 monolith is a super intelligence, in a sense. If you want a super machine intelligence, it has nothing to do with being human hmm. at all. It is a machine intelligence, and that becomes more clarified in the sequel, two thousand ten, both the book and the movie. So this super intelligence transforms the human into a star child with a specific purpose. You remember the last scene, the star child is seen going back to Earth? In Clark's version, he's going back to disconnect that nuclear, that that orbiting weapon Mm. to save humans from destroying themselves. That would have been a great ending. Mm -hmm. But I like Kubrick's better because it's more mysterious. Well, yeah. And when you leave, when when you create a mystery, the mind has to is forced to fill in gaps and be more creative about what might be going on. Yeah. Um, so I love Clark's idea, but I prefer. I'm, I'm glad Kubrick decided. And by the way, commercially, it would have been an easier movie to explain. Absolutely. In Clark's version, but Kubrick was not interested in being popular. He was interested in creating a masterpiece. Mm. I I was totally I, I was totally. Um, I had no idea what the film was about when I saw it. When Nobody it was, else did either. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, I don't know what happened. But we what knew, just happened. But here's the genius. But we knew it was about something important. Yes. I mean, anybody can create a mystery and go, okay, it's a mystery. Okay, I don't know what's going on. That, that's frustrating. What made 2001 for many of us so overwhelming, and I felt got the same thing reading a lot of Nietzsche, is... <laughs> You're being pushed beyond your comfort zone. You're being pushed to think and feel at a level you haven't had to do before. And, you know, I think that's why it was so popular with you and with young people. Because, again, I watched this forum on it. And a couple of the actors who were in it, the leads, went around on tours after it, immediately after it, as it was being released because, you know, they wanted publicity. 
And they said that they got a lot of negative responses from classic film critics and things, and from older people. What is this film? We don't get it. It's boring. But, but when they hit the, the monolith, when they hit the, the high school students and the college <laughs> students, they were so much more interested in it, and they were asking about the science, at, et cetera. And one of the guys who was uh, one of the leads in it was saying, like, I threw a whole press conference and I made sure that all the kids from the local high schools and colleges came, he said. And when the older people were in the audience, the, the regular journalists, their mouths were dropping open because they weren't interested. They didn't really have questions for these actors other than, you know, what did you get paid or, you know, did you know it would be a hit? And the younger ones were saying, well, when that moment in the film, when this happened, now, did that mean this? Did that mean that? So they saw that it was really very much, in terms of its original take, was a youth film. Now let's connect this to our the first half of our discussion, which is the, this is also the 50th anniversary of the most exactly. uh, violent the perfect and, time. and I would say interesting protests in world history. So here you have young people both Pro, putting putting their bodies on the line and actively protesting, e, not ca, even if it incited a police riot, even if it meant going to jail, even if it meant getting beat up. You put you you're willing to go on the line for women's rights, for civil rights, for to, to get us out of Vietnam, and here comes this movie and you as you point out, which is revolutionary on the more, I would say philosophical level, um, you know forcing us to think about things, including machine intelligence. And, and they were ready for that. The kids were ready for that, or they became ready for it. Science fiction movies had no stature in terms of of uh, good films. Right. Films, science right. fiction right. and films were They were pure used. entertainment. Yeah, absolutely. And what kind of a science fiction movie starts with apes? <laughs> 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 and, and it's an interesting question that we have to bring up, which is, as we sit here in 2018, how much have we really advanced from those apes? If you remember the scene, you're in the, I guess, the Serengeti jungle. And the apes, there's a watering hole. Um, there, there's, a, there's a lot of legitimate fear if you're an ape to survive. There's a leopard that could kill mm -hmm. it. There's a uh, opposing tribe that wants the water, right? And the when the ape finally figures out in the movie that this bone could be a weapon, a tool, the monolith is shown. Right. In other words, here's this advanced intelligence showing up to see if it can get these apes to transform, in essence, into humans. Now we take Nietzsche's point, which is our responsibility is to get past being human and become ubermensch, transhuman. Mm -hmm. uh, no, it's beyond fear. The ubermensch would be beyond, would, would not be a fearful creature and would not be a greedy creature. It would not be a creature who would so easily bow down to authority. And yet one can make a case that if humans didn't bend onto authority, we would have destroyed ourselves years ago, that authority somehow keeps things under wraps, under control. But that's the excuse that we're hearing right now. And by the way, there is a huge resurgence in fascism across yeah, Europe. There is. Across Central and South America. And if you read Madeleine, I'm not a big Madeleine Albright fan, who was Secretary of State under Clinton, never a big fan of hers. She wrote a brilliant essay 
in the New York Times saying, if you don't think fascism can come here, you're not paying attention to what Trump's doing. And the whole rise of the strongman is very similar to the apes because they always have a lead ape. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very animal. I mean, dogs have lead dogs in the dog pack. Ants have a queen. The, the, and mm -hmm. the lead ape is usually the biggest and the strongest. Uh, and so we have versions Not necessarily of the most intelligent. Right. The, the one who, who chooses to dominate. Um, and uh, we've got a number of in examples of that right now in the world. You could say yeah. China, North Korea, Russia, the USA. Venezuela, Brazil, yep. Czechoslovakia, Germany, the right wing is huge. Uh, Italy, the right wing is huge. And of course, welcome to the United States. Yeah. Now, we're, it seems like we are somewhat productively protesting it and offering a counterbalance to it, but we'll have to see. Um, the, the, the point is these themes that came up in 68, both in the protests and in the movie, because we're dealing with machine intelligence now. And there's the big question. When these as these machines get more and more powerful, and they are, and as they start teaching themselves, they are, will they surpass us? And what will their relationship to us be? What will their opinion of us be? What Will they see us as a threat, as a nuisance, as something cute to be just, so there's you know, films pets? right here, right now that you're describing the future films where these things happen, sort of like the Planet of the Apes, mm -hmm. where the things are reversed and the apes are in charge Maybe and the, the humans machines are will save us. Lesser. Well, that's my theory. <laughs> and by the way, that's Arthur C. Clarke's theory. When he was asked back in 68 about machine intelligence... And because, remember, Hal becomes psychotic mm -hmm. and kills all the hibernating astronauts as well as one of the astronauts. Now, they give the reason for it in 2010. And it's an interesting reason why Hal goes berserk. He was programmed with two conflicting orders. Right. Mm. On the one hand, because who's gonna, who created Hal? The government. And the government and scientists controlled by the government. They were concerned. If you remember in the movie, Dr. Haywood Floyd is going up to the moon to learn about this thing that was discovered that seems to have intelligence. This monolith was uncovered. And the people, the governments on Earth, the United States government says, well, wait a minute. If, if the American people and the humans in general learn that there's a higher intelligence It'll freak everybody out. So we're not going to tell them. We got to keep this secret. Well, how? So how, here's this computer, and, he, and the computer's programmed to do two things which are c contradictory. One, your job is to help the two astronauts who are not hibernating get to Jupiter, right? Mm -hmm. Complete the mission. Whatever they need and whatever the ship needs, <clears throat> do it for them, do it for the ship. But, under no circumstances reveal what the mission is because if they discover that the mission is higher intelligence, they may freak out, <laughs> the astronauts. <laughs> so Hal's given, is, in, is in conflict. He's got to totally help them, but he's got to keep a secret from them. Mm -hmm. And he's got to send back psychological profiles of what they're thinking about, if you remember the film. So it's very interesting. Now, could that happen? We don't know. Maybe, maybe not. There's disagreement as to whether a Hal would ever have that kind of a breakdown. 
But that conflict. <clears throat> but certainly we have a lot of people thinking about how we teach ethics to machine intelligence. Yeah. Because we're making an assumption which may or may not be true. It's called projection. We know what we would do with the power if we had the power of a supercomputer. Yeah. We would, through greed and fear, destroy the planet. <laughs> or want to control everybody. But right? you know, it's interesting. There's moral, there's amoral, and there's immoral. You might try and make a computer be amoral. In other words, it doesn't seem to be making moral choices. Mm -hmm. But if it's dealing with human beings and emotions... Uh, it may need to be moral because it may need to express compassion. Uh, so it gets complicated. Like, how do you program it? There's no questions that computers can emulate compassion and empathy. Mm -hmm. We've already done that. We were even with even with um, Siri and uh, Alexa, Alexa, which are primitive compared to what they're going to be in three years from now. Primitive. Yeah. We still relate to them almost as we get frustrated almost like we get frustrated with a kid who's not who's not responding to our instructions you right. know what a friend of mine's husband gets mad and, and says f you f you f you do it and then it responds you don't have to talk like that <laughs> <laughs> so it's very interesting um where we've come but you know we can one can make a case it's somewhat cynical that we haven't advanced that much from that ape that when it realized this bone was a tool, first used it to kill the um, other side, the competing the, other, uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the leader of the of the competing tribe. Right. It's used for violence. Of course, a bone is also used to dig and to find food mm -hmm. as, a, as a constructive tool. And the brilliant, the ingenious move of having the ape and think about being in a movie theater and not knowing what's not knowing this was coming, throws this bone. First of all, what's this monolith doing on the Serengeti <laughs> plane? And what are, why are we spending 15 minutes with a bunch of apes? And then all of a sudden, you realize it learns that this bone is a tool, uses it violently to kill a competing tribe leader, and then hurls it. This macho hurls it in the air, and it starts... And it and starts to rotate up and said, rotate up. Arthur C. Clarke's version, it became an atomic weapon. It becomes a... Uh, an orbiting, um, uh, an orbiting tech technological, uh, what would you call it? Uh, uh, um, uh, platform. It's an orbiting platform that contains a nuclear war, right. warhead. So, it, so it's a weapon as a bone, and it becomes it a becomes weapon. It becomes a weapon up there, right there, and it takes the, I'm saying the ubermensch, the transhuman, the star child, to, right. to, dis, to disengage it. Humans are incapable of stopping the destruction, of, of blowing each other up. But the star child does. So the question is, that's, that's seen more or less as a spiritual transformation. Mm -hmm. Possible. It's what Nietzsche was calling for in a way. Um, but at the very least, if it ain't going to be a spiritual transcendence that saves us from blowing each other up, I believe our best bet is machine intelligence is going to prevent us from blowing each other up. Now, it's going to depend because where machine intelligence goes depends on two big factors. What we teach it and, mm -hmm. what, it teaches and what it teaches itself. Yeah. 
And how those two things come together, no bets are <laughs> off. I read more pessimistic views than positive. I'm more optimistic because I think I, as much as I've lost faith in the human race, I mean, it's 2018. We're still at war every day of our lives. We still don't know how to feed. We still don't have the discipline. We don't, we don't, we don't care enough to feed people who are hungry uh, around the world. Um, we're still... We're still too fearful and too greedy, and that's all of us, which is why John Lennon was right. We're going to have to free our minds before any of this is going to really change. But um, why free your mind when, you know, you can sit back and be entertained? Um, <laughs> yeah. One positive take is from Hugh Price. Hugh Price is the um, academic director of something called the Leverholm Center for the Future of Intelligence at the University of Cambridge. Um, and he says, now it's time to prepare for the machinocene. Technically, we are in the period known as the an, uh, anthro... Let me, let me find it. Anthro is, is, refers to humans. Right. The anthropocene, I believe it's called. In other words, we're in the age of humans. We're the most intelligent species on the planet. We are the most dominant force on the planet. Right. That's not going to be true for that much longer. Uh, we are going to either be sharing or give or seeding that dominance to machine intelligence. Um, here's what he says. Human level intelligence is familiar in biological hardware. You're using it right now. Science and technology seem to be converging from several directions on the possibility of similar intelligence in non-biological systems. It's difficult to predict when this might happen, but most specialists estimate within the next 30 to 50 years. Um, machine machines will literally be more intelligent in every, every aspect to human hmm. beings. Freed of biological constraints, such as a brain that needs to fit through a human birth canal, right? The human brain can only be so big. Right. And it turns out that, you know, um, how much power is required to run the human brain? By the way, the human brain is the most complex entity in the universe. It's got trillions of synapses. But you know it runs on 20 watts? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. Non-biological machines might be much more intelligent than we are because they don't have to fit through a human birth canal. And they most likely will not be constrained by fear and greed. What would this mean for us? A leading AI researcher suggests that for better or worse, it would be the biggest event in human history. Indeed, our choices in this century might have long-term consequences not only for our own planet, but for the galaxy at large. The future of intelligence in the cosmos might depend on what we do right now down here on Earth. Should we be concerned? Well, two big things have changed in recent decades. First, there's been a lot of real progress, theoretical, practical, and technological, in understanding the mechanisms of intelligence, biological as well as non-biological. Second, AI has now reached a point where it's immensely useful, medically, um, uh, business-wise, mm -hmm. um, obviously convenience-wise. Um, one way or another, we're going to be sharing the planet with a lot of non-biological intelligence. Whatever it brings, we human face this future together. We have an obvious common interest in getting it right. 
there have been encouraging signs of a growing awareness of these issues. Many thousands of AI researchers and others have now signed an open letter calling for research to ensure that AI is safe and beneficial. Mm. Now, I'm mostly optimistic, but here comes my cynicism when I read this next sentence. Hmm. Most recently, there is a welcome new partnership on AI to benefit people and society by Google, Amazon, Facebook, IBM, and Microsoft. Excuse me if I'm not real confident <laughs> in those corporations' ability to put the betterment of, of humankind above their uh, checkbooks and, and stock returns. You'll have to excuse my cynicism. Interestingly, Apple is not mentioned as part of that partnership. Huh, that is interesting. Now, I've never responded to Apple products, but I've always, in my research has shown, I've always felt that Apple, of all these huge mega technological corporations, is the most humanistic. Um, I read the biography of Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. Great book. Great book. I came away with the following. Steve Jobs may have been the most important thinker of the last 40 years. Two, I'm glad I never met him because <laughs> he was a real jerk uh -huh. and a total maniacal autocrat. But he really, he's the only one of these CEOs that I've ever read about who you really feel put the importance of humanity above his personal profits. The only one. Hmm. Well, he had two things going. He wanted to make it user-friendly, which a lot of that stuff isn't and still isn't. I mean, when geeks make it, they make it for geeks. Mm -hmm. uh, so he made it user-friendly, and he made it aesthetically pleasing. Mm -hmm. And there, too, the other makers of computers were not thinking, how does it look? And he was thinking, I want it to be beautiful. I want it to not have sharp edges. I don't want it to have 37 places you can plug it in, etc. Mm -hmm. So that he brought a couple of values to the computer and, and therefore the device industry that weren't there before. Yeah. Bill Gates, though, has done quite a lot with the billions that he has earned see that's a two-edged sword yes he deserves all the credit in the world for not only spending billions on humanitarian efforts but also joining with others like uh buffett and uh right. to, to pool researchers and saying we you know if we, if we make a billion dollars we owe it back to humanity to put money back into medical research and education they deserve all the credit in the world for that but his company sucks <laughs> yeah, well. I'm sorry. You ever try to deal with Microsoft? <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. And I use their products, but they're horrible to deal with. And they're greedy MFers. I'm sorry. That's my take on it. So, yes, he deserves all the credit in the world for his humanitarian efforts. Well, these but I'm areas. Sorry, he, he, de he, ran, he developed and ran, in my estimation, a very anti-humanist company. Yeah. They're, they're all greedy. Look at look at Spectrum. Look at all the things that send us TV now that can end up, you know, costing you hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month just to get access to your computer, your television, and your phone. It's extremely expensive. And when you call them, they say, "Well, this is the only program we can give you," or well, "We could give you this one, and we'd take off five dollars here, but we'd put twenty-two dollars on here." And you know, well, here's an interesting—they are greedy. Interesting thought experiment. We find we we get the best supercomputers in the world, and we 
right? And we all know that even computers, the answers depend upon what questions you ask. Yes. Yes. But let's just as a thought experiment say that the world agrees to choose 20 experts from the field of economics, philosophy, uh, medicine, business, gender equality rights, right? We, we get this group and say, we want you to program, we, we, we want you to, we'll program it, but you ask the questions, you put in the data, and we're going to ask the supercomputers, based on all the information that we've inputted, what would be the most effective uh, government-slash-economy Mm. model that would benefit the most people. What would the computer come out with? Yeah, I, good question. Now, we don't know, but I'm not betting on capitalism as being Well, oh, I think it would definitely come up with a, let's think about the people at the bottom for a while. What is their problem? What are their problems? And they might very well come up with a lot of um, sort of socialism ideas. Well, this should be guaranteed. And since these people at the top are making all this money, we can take a little from them and put it down below. See, but here's where the, the inputting becomes important, because if you talk, as I have, to very wealthy people I actually like as people, don't like their philosophy, their philosophy is, and get ready for cold wetware, being having a human brain, if you give everybody too much power, then the whole thing falls apart. That you need, it's sort of like if we look at the ant colony or the bee colony, you have to have a queen bee. You have to have a king. You have to have a leader but you don't or have you're going to have, gonna have chaos. Right, but you don't have to have economic domination. You may have to have levels because some people don't want to work that hard or participate that much. Or uh, How many people do you talk to and say, did you like that movie? I don't know. Yeah, I guess maybe. I mean, that's an By American way, mind. I, I, I'm, ar I'm trying to argue for it, but I don't believe in it. You see, their argument is if you don't have competition, then, then, then everyone loses their motivation to do better. I couldn't, I couldn't disagree with that more. Yeah, I disagree with it too. But I think that they, they also don't want to think about the bottom, whatever, 10%, 20% of people. And that shouldn't be that hard a problem to solve. I mean, I think if Bill Gates did that instead of solving diseases in Africa, and I think it's great that he's solving diseases in Africa, but if, if he and Buffett and those guys really said, what do we do with the bottom, you know, 10, 15, 20% of people are say bottom in terms of poverty, in terms of education, well, et cetera. They could fix that. But they can't, not, no, they can't fix it unless you fix the, unless you change the system of government and economics. Well, you would have to change the system of economics. And those people got rich because of capitalism. They cap can still be rich, but the poor shouldn't be poor. No, I'm agreeing with you. I'm just saying how complex. <laughs> right. I'm just saying how complex the situation is. It is and complex, this is, and this is the reason why I believe, as others do, that we human beings call it cynicism if you like. I just think it's being realistic. We human beings have proven we can we can create magnificent tools. We came up with the golden rule, which is a brilliant psychological feat. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Brilliant. We just don't follow it. We're capable, but we haven't pulled it off. After all those millions of years from ape to us, we're still at war every day. Greed and fear is rampant. 
We haven't developed an economic system that really cares for everybody. Haven't been able to pull it off. Well, but look at Europe and look at Northern Europe. Look at the Scandinavian countries. I mean, they don't have as big a line up and down between the rich and the poor. And they've done that with a kind of benevolent socialism where everybody can send their kid to child care from birth if they wish to. And what the American and not pay for and the it. Americans response to that is, which has some merit, although I don't buy into it. It has some merit, which is, yeah. And 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 how, and what do they achieve in terms of science? What do they achieve they in do terms achieve. of entrepreneurialship? What do they achieve? IKEA. They make great furniture. They they uh, win Nobel Prizes. Oh, they, there goes my argument. They yeah. they're doing quite well, you know, Denmark, Sweden, etc. Their 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 places are beautiful. Their bathrooms are beautiful. So what you if know? you took what if you took the supercomputer, the supercomputer, and just downloaded all the information that mankind has gotten over its centuries of being, and let it make the decision? Here's how I would do it. You ready? Because we know that what you input is going to prejudice it. Now, eventually, the machines will probably get intelligent enough to figure that out, uh-huh. figure out human where human prejudice is. <laughs> right. And by the way, we all have human prejudice. Absolutely. Every one of us. We're all biased. Okay. Here's what I would do. Input the headline, the, the, the front page, pick seven or eight, pick Time Magazine, the New York Times, a, cons- uh, a conservative uh, newspaper, Time Magazine, a cons- um, uh, the National Review. Take a bunch of these and just put the cover stories of the last five years from around the world. Right. Just the cover stories and say to the computer, how do we solve this? <laughs> it might work. Just put in the front page of newspapers and magazines and here are our issues. Here's what's going on with the with in the in the uh, Anthropocene that, that uh, is, era. How do we improve this? You know, if what you, would the computer come up with? I I think we should try it. Thinking back on how are we different from apes? This week, the woman who went to YouTube and shot it up, she's a PETA supporter. She thinks we shouldn't torture animals and she's so upset by this and by the fact that they've removed some of her YouTube videos which apparently had animal violence in them uh, she goes to the campus and shoots human beings who I guess she thinks are not animals you know it's like when I read that about her because I know that I, I happen to love animals too you know and I certainly don't think they should be tortured but some of the craziest people I've ever met are in PETA well, yeah, the, the, but you know what? In order to get heard, you have to be a little crazy. Let's go back to the 68. Nothing would have happened with Vietnam. Nothing would have happened with women's rights. Nothing would have had happened with civil rights if it wasn't for violent protests. And that's just the fact, because you know what? We have wetware. We have biological brains. And among our intelligence... It has to deal with all the fear and greed that courses through it because we don't want to deal with our unconscious. Well, you're not and that's defending this woman, are you? No. This crazy, messed up woman who's no. mad at YouTube. But I understand. So she walks in and shoots random no. people? She, 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 she got what she deserved. She's dead. But I <laughs> empathize with the fact that I cannot stand the fact that we humans are still torturing animals that we are. It's, it's again, I'm waiting for machine intelligence to educate us and tell us, what the hell are you people doing? I don't think we torture them that much. You bet we do. <laughs> I think we do. Wake up. 
Um, at any rate, <laughs> my God, my God, there's so much evidence. There's millions. We take very good care of our dogs and our cats, but the uh, cows oh, we do? and the sheep. Uh, tell that, tell that well, to the animal uh, rescue yeah, centers. I know. Oh, well, individual right. crazy humans, right. I'm sure certain crazy humans do this because they're crazy. And, and they're the human. human race in general tortures animals in the excuse of cheaper food. It's a fact. Okay, that, that, that's true. We're going to take a break. Yeah. You shouldn't shoot people because of it. <laughs>